0: Welcome to the Master of None podcast. Adventures in a hands-on life. Build. Grow. Cook. Train. Explore. This week, we're going to be doing some more listener Q&A and... I'm gonna start doing this a little differently. I'm actually gonna start kind of grouping the questions I get into categories, so that, for example, this week we're doing listener question and answer specifically about land restoration and habitat improvement, which definitely seems to be one of the topics that you guys are more interested in. So, if you don't, if you sent me a question and it had to do with something like uh cheese making or cooking maybe we'll do a cooking q a if we get enough questions in that category or I get questions about hunting we'll do like a hunting q a but for this week we're focusing on land land restoration and habitat improvement so uh, like I mentioned in the last QA episode that we did it's easier if I just leave names and locations off instead of trying to verify with everybody whether they do or don't want me to use their name. So also a couple of these are questions that I got that were so similar that it was easy to just combine them into one question. So if you hear your question, you're like, that's not quite what I said. That's why. So let's go ahead and tackle some questions. All right. Question number one. I've always wanted to own some land of my own. Maybe to do some small-scale farming. Maybe to build my home to live on permanently. Maybe just to have my own place to hunt and fish. I've never really been sure what to look for though. How large of a property or even what state I want to settle down in. It's been a few years since, Since I've seriously thought about looking for land, but listening to some of your episodes on habitat restoration on your own property has rekindled my desire to purchase some land. It's also made me realize that I don't necessarily need to find the quote perfect property because I could apply some of the same restoration methods that you have used. That said, would there be any factors with a piece of land that would be a quote hard no for you when it comes to a restoration project? There are some very affordable properties out there, but some of them seem pretty bad. Also, in your opinion, what should I be looking for in a property? Okay, so let's tackle the first part of that question first, as far as what factors might be a hard no for me if I was looking at at some land. And I guess the Maybe the criteria to think about would be, what can I not fix? Is there a lot of things that you can fix or a lot of things that you can mitigate, but there are some things that you're not going to be able to, to fix necessarily. So a couple things things that, that might be a, a kind of hard no for me would be any sort of known contamination, like if there has been some sort of chemical spill or something like that, on the property that you're looking at. I would just be really wary of that because that's going to be a a very different type of restoration project if you're dealing with some sort of actual contamination. Other things that I might not be able to fix would be noise pollution or air or water pollution sources nearby. So let's say that I find this property that on paper seems great and then I go to take a look at it and I realize it's actually Right next door to, oh, I don't know, a big glass making factory. And so I'm going to be constantly hearing the noise from that glass making factory, possibly getting some of the, the smoke and all of that. That would, for me personally, that's not going to be something that I can fix or, or really do anything about. So I might rule those out right off the bat. Uh, some other factors that I might approach with caution that may not be a hard no, but might be severe enough that, eh, let's weigh some pros and cons would be, has part or all of this property been previously used for planting row crops, most likely like corn and soybeans. Now, why would I approach that with caution? And also like the larger percentage of the property that has been planted with row crops, the more concerned I'm going to be. Why? A couple reasons. With typical modern industrial agricultural practices, you're really not going to have any topsoil at all in those areas. Maybe I shouldn't say that you're not going to have any topsoil, but the topsoil that you have is going to be mostly depleted of nutrients just based on the way that we the way that we've been doing, quote, modern agriculture for the last several decades. You also have the possibility that it's been heavily treated with industrial fertilizers and industrial pesticides. So that's definitely a concern also. Another factor to think about is, and I heard the term seed bank the other day, and I love that term because it really expresses this idea that, in, a, in most pieces of ground, you're going to have so much dormant seed and rootstock from a variety of plants, hopefully native plants, but you're going to have so much of that seed and dormant rootstock in the ground that when you start providing the the right growing environment for those plants, they're going to sprout on their own and you don't have to purchase seed or individual plants for all of these native plants, all of this diversity that you want to grow on this patch of ground. That's not going to be the case in a patch of ground that's been planted with row crops. You're not going to have that underground seed bank where you're just providing the environment and it grows. Chances are, if anything grows, it could be, it very well could be invasive species that you want to get rid of anyway, because those are the ones that tend to take hold in those more depleted environments. Another thing that I would think long and hard about is a property that has any sort of severe erosion and not that you can't fix it. In fact, as all of you know, I'm working on restoring some areas with very severe erosion right now, but that's not, that's not as easy as just applying some of these techniques of eliminating the overgrazing and then managing grazing pressure after that and, building up your topsoil layer and slowing down the water movement, getting that water underground. It's not as simple when you're actually dealing with severe erosion, um, especially to the point where being around it uh, could be dangerous. Like Maybe there's unstable ground and if it gave way, maybe you're going to fall 20 or 30 feet down into this eroded ravine. That's just something I'd be very cautious of. Again, like I said, not impossible to deal with, but approach that one with caution. Now, uh, next part of the question, Oh, what should you be looking for in a property? Now, obviously it depends. So before we start to narrow down kind of what you might actually start looking for, having having been a licensed real estate salesperson in the state of Wyoming and a specifically a rural land specialist, I have some experience with talking to people about what they think that they want in a property. And it turns out, believe it or not, everybody wants the same thing. And let me describe to you the property that everybody out there, almost without fail, everybody's looking for this exact same property. And here here are the criteria. First of all, the property is located in a state that they have decided that they want to live in for whatever reason, whether that's job opportunities or tax law in that state or whatever, maybe some, some other educational benefits or something like that, uh, politics, you name it. There are all sorts of reasons why somebody wants to live in a certain state. So that's first thing is everybody wants this property, this ideal property to be located in the state that they've decided they want to live in. And this property is going to be very large, the larger, the better. Also, it's going to have a great view, usually a view of like mountains and lakes and I don't know, just great view, however you define great view. Uh, it's going to have mature trees on it. It's going to have at least one water feature of some sort, whether that's a pond, a natural spring, a little stream, a waterfall, river frontage, lake frontage. Everybody wants that that water feature on their property. Uh, obviously, lots of wildlife. So, you know, when you wake up in the morning and you look out your window, you see the the deer and the elk spread out across this green valley, grazing happily on the on the plants growing in the valley, and maybe a flock of wild turkeys strutting out of the timber, and who knows what what other wildlife. But everybody wants a wildlife, uh, except they they don't want the scary wildlife like the bears and wolves and mountain lions. What else? Um, oh yes, easy access, easy, convenient access, like road access to the property without being so convenient that there's any traffic. So very easy, convenient access with no traffic. Also very close to town or a a town of some sort for convenience, obviously shopping, jobs, schools, whatever, but with the feeling that it's very far from town once you're on the property obviously this property is also going to have some sort of utilities already so that we don't have that inconvenience of having to bring in utilities. So that's going to be electricity and whatever else. Maybe it already has a well. Oh, that's another thing. Everybody wants a property that already has a well on it. So they have that guarantee that they're going to have a water source for for the home that they may build on the property or for livestock or irrigation or whatever they want that well already existing so that they don't have any risk in buying a property and then having to drill a well or paying for a test hole before they buy the property. Yeah. So of course everybody wants that. Um here, Here's a fun one. Everybody also wants their property, regardless of where it is, they want their property to have a slightly milder climate than the rest of the surrounding area. So they're going to look for something that in the summer is a little cooler. Maybe it's shaded by the mountain or trees or whatever. In the winter, it's a little warmer, so it has plenty of sun exposure. Maybe it's a little less windy for one reason or another. So everybody wants that property that for whatever reason is milder climate-wise, weather-wise, year-round than the rest of the surrounding area. Um, obviously, access to public lands so, especially in the Western United States, we have huge amounts of public land that's going to be either like uh, Bureau of Land Management lands, National Forest, State lands. Um, those are those are kind of the big three that you run into. There, there's some others too, but those are kind of the big three. And there are these big chunks that could be anywhere from a square mile, kind of at the small end, up to. Possibly a couple hundred square miles. And so everybody wants their little chunk of private land to back up to that large chunk of public land. But they also want that public land to not actually have public access so that it's basically just an extension of their own private land without having to pay to buy it or pay taxes on it or anything like that. So, of course, that's what everybody's looking for. And finally, the one cherry on the top that everybody wants with this property is that it's a rock bottom price. And having helped hundreds of people look for the right property for them, I still have yet to find this property. It's because it doesn't exist. Because if you found a property that had all of those, that first whole list of things that we talked about, if you find that property, it's not going to be cheap because that's what everybody wants. So, what you need to do instead of saying i want all of this from from a list like that or maybe you have some other factors in mind write down like your top your top 3 or maybe write down your top 5 and then of those 5 narrow that down to your top 3 and then of those 3 list those 3 in order of priority because you're never going to find a property that has everything you want and i can also tell you if of, of that whole list. If your number one thing is the price, you're going to have to settle for something that basically has none of the rest of that. So instead, what I would do is figure out your budget first. And then within that budget, what you can kind of do is, well, just, just use that as kind of a, a search criteria. No, I can spend up to X on, on this property that I'm looking at at this point. And if I realize that what I want does not exist at that price point, then instead of settling for something that you really don't want, that you're not excited about, keep saving up and increase that price point that you can start looking at. But price aside, let's say that we've settled on, on a budget and either we have a firm number or maybe for some of you, you can say, you know what, the, the price is really not an issue, money is no object. That that's great. In that case, really start focusing on on these other factors. And even if money is no object, you're still not going to find the property that has all of that that I listed. It just doesn't exist. So, some examples might be things you would prioritize. Uh, maybe you would say, "I want," and I would I would also recommend getting a real good picture in your mind of property sizes, really get a frame of reference on what an acre looks like, what, and what you can do with an acre and what five acres looks like and feels like what 40 acres looks like and feels like 40 acres, a 40 acre square happens to be exactly a quarter mile by a quarter mile. Now, to some of you, that sounds tiny, to some of you, that sounds enormous, and what I've found is that most people actually don't have a great perspective on, unless unless it has to do with the field that you work in or if you live on some large acreage, most people really struggle to wrap their mind around, around these larger properties, and maybe you've spent your whole life growing up. In an urban or suburban environment. And honestly, to you, if I tell you 10 acres versus a hundred acres versus a thousand acres, yeah, you know the difference in the numbers. But as far as really wrapping your head around how big it is, what, what you can do with that much land, how much it's going to cost if you want to fence that much land. Um, if you're in an area that has multiple parcels that are all that same size, how far does that mean you are from your your neighbors? How how densely is this area going to be populated if it's 10-acre properties versus 40-acre properties? So I would recommend do some research on that and figure out how you can really wrap your mind around those sizes and then decide on the size of property that's right for you. And um, so you may decide, for example, I want something that's at least 10 acres and I'm not interested in anything that's over 400 acres now that's a pretty broad spectrum there but maybe you can narrow it down a little further maybe I'm you know I, I want at least 20 acres but I'm not interested in more than 80 and and kind of go from there so so size, I think size of the property should be in everyone's um, at least in your top five. Now, from there, you really need to, you do need to figure out what you're going to do with the property before, before you can prioritize some of these others. If, if I want to use this property to build a marina, obviously it needs to be lakefront or oceanfront property. Otherwise, I'm not going to be able to build a marina. If I want to use this as a fishing property, obviously it needs some sort of water, lake, river, whatever. So, some of that stuff may seem obvious, but at this point this is when you need to ask yourself what you're going to be doing with it. And maybe a better example would be am I planning on building a home on this property? If so, what are what are some of the things that I need for a home? Well, I'm going to need either existing utilities or the ability to to pull those utilities in. Um I need to if I'm planning on building a home on a property, before you buy the property, you should actually probably figure out at least one option for a good building site on the property based on topography, floodplains, um, access points, all of that. Speaking of access points, <laughs> that's another thing that any property should have is access. That's kind of a must have and that may seem like a no brainer, but um and The law when it comes to this actually varies from state to state as far as like, if you had a property that did not have a road to it and was surrounded by other people's private land, obviously to get to your property, you're going to have to one way or another cross through somebody else's land. So find out how that works in the state that you're looking at and just make sure that you are actually going to have access to your land and I don't mean just like handshake agreement access through one of your neighbor's properties or down their driveway or something. I mean actual documented legal access to the land because that that might work out great for now, but what if you want to go and sell the property? Then somebody else has to make sure that they have that legal access and that's going to be a hang up for you being able to sell the property on down the road. Or what if your neighbor sells the property? Well, then you no longer have that permission. Or unfortunate things happen. What if you get into it with your neighbor for one reason or another and they say, you know what? You can't drive down my driveway anymore. Too bad. So make sure before you buy a property that you actually have legal access to the property. Now, if you're going to use this as some sort of outdoor recreational property whether that's for hunting or fishing your your mind is going to want to jump right to the flora and fauna that exists on the property the plants and animals that exist on the property but this is really where this is one of the things that you can actually have the most control over so i would recommend even if you want to use this as a hunting property don't worry so much about what's actually currently existing on the property because as we've talked about with all of our land restoration work and habitat improvement work that's something that you really can improve on your own without that much work or maybe I should say without that much money cuz you can do it just by putting in the sweat and the labor and getting it done as opposed to something like i don't know having to build a road to get into your property well there's there's just no cheap way to do that and it's honestly not that much fun. I'd rather do a project like the Habitat Improvement that I can put in some labor, minimal amount of money, and really enjoy seeing the results develop. A road, it's like throw the money at it, write the check, bite the bullet, and yay, you have a road. That's just not that exciting. Now, water. Water. Uh, We mentioned this, that everybody wants that water feature on their property, the pond, the stream, whatever it is. And that's great. And I totally understand why, but go back and listen to some of the other episodes where we've really gone in depth on like creating a wetland without that water feature, without that actual flowing water source. How do you do that? Because even in a very dry climate, like where I live, this is possible for you to do. Even if there's no current water source, there are techniques you can use. You may even have to hire an expert and or just ask me more questions. Not that I'm an expert on this, but I've had great success so far with this. And So send me an email, ask me a question, and it'd be really fun actually to highlight somebody else's property on an episode of the podcast and we can... We can start looking around for, you know, what do we need to do to improve the property? What, uh, what measures do we need to take to control those invasive species, to cultivate those native species, to slow down the water, to develop those potential water sources for the future? So although I totally understand the appeal of the water feature, maybe don't prioritize that quite as highly as you think you need to because that is something that can be developed in the future. Now, I know this one's less exciting to talk about, but it turns out this is actually one of the most important factors for most people, and that is how close is this property to, we'll call it town, basically where all of your conveniences are, where school, job opportunities, uh, grocery store, hardware, whatever that looks like in the area where you're looking, how far is that drive? Because let's say that you have some sort of regular job in town that you drive to every day, or you have kids who are going to school and you need to drive them to school, that distance starts to become a major factor. Make sure you keep it in perspective though. Um, so here's an example. From, from where we live, from our house, it takes me 25 minutes to drive to town. Now, that may seem like a long drive, and here's where I say keep it in perspective, because when you're driving through rural areas, it seems further or longer, and as compared to when I lived in Houston, it would take me half an hour to go basically anywhere, whether that was the grocery store or the movie theater or the gym or where I worked was even further That was like a 45-minute drive most of the time to get to work. And so even though it seems like, oh, we're way out of town, that's really just a matter of perception based on the physical size of the town and how far out from that our house is. So keep it in perspective, but that is something to be aware of. If it's an hour and a half to town and you're doing that twice a day, you know, to and from work, to and from school, whatever, that really is going to start to add up as opposed to that, you know, 15 to 30 minutes, that's not so bad. And in fact, is comparable or less than the amount of time that people who live in urban areas or suburban areas typically end up commuting. And maybe for you, that's not going to be a factor, you know, still consider it, but maybe that's further down on your list. Maybe that's number You know, maybe that's in your top 10, but not in your top five most important factors. Maybe you're, maybe you work from home and you don't have kids in school. So you're like, well, I can go to town maybe once a week. Maybe I'm going to go to town on Sundays to go to church and I'm going to do all of my grocery shopping and go to the post office and all of that on one trip to town per week. And I don't really plan on going to town much other than that. Well, in that case, maybe maybe a two-hour drive to town is no big deal for you. So like I said, uh, just keep that in perspective and realize that that is one of those factors. But kind of review the list. I was kind of making fun of people for wanting that perfect property. But in my experience, that's very real that that's what everybody, once you start talking to them and they start telling you what they want, that's exactly what everybody wants is that same perfect property. So instead of thinking you're going to get all of that, Take that and like I said, identify like top five most important things and then of that top five, your top three and then list those top three in order because you are going to be able to find a property that at least has your top three and we're back. So sometimes I just get the chance to record like maybe 20 or 30 minutes and then I have to go do something else, have a meeting, pick the kids up from school you name it, and and then come back and record some more and piece it together. If I can, I prefer to sit down and record for like a full hour, hour and a half, or whatever it takes in one shot, but that doesn't always happen. So this one, we are going to have to piece together a few little chunks. And I think we answered that last question pretty thoroughly. So let's go ahead and move on. Question number two, don't most herbivores eat grass? It seems like having an entire property of grass would be the best thing for them. I get that trees are pretty, but from a quote habitat improvement perspective, wouldn't it be okay to have only grass or do these other types of plants serve another purpose? Okay. So let's, let's kind of go through this and unpack it a little bit. And there are a bunch of different topics we could cover in depth here. And we could probably actually do a whole podcast series just on that last question about other types of plants serving another purpose. And we could like do a whole episode on each type of plant and the purposes it serves. Okay. So let's. And yes, I realize there are other types of plants, but let's generally talk about four types of plants here. Let's talk about grasses, forbs, shrubs, and trees. And let's also talk about habitat needs for wildlife. So that's going to be basically food, water, and shelter. Now, when you think about domestic livestock, like domestic cattle, Yes, if it's really cold, windy, rainy, whatever, you do have to provide some shelter for them, but they only need actual shelter from the elements because when it comes to like cover type shelter, like hiding type shelter, like a lot of other animals need, um, how would I put this? Some domesticated animals are, have been domesticated to the point where they're kind of too dumb to realize that that would be beneficial. Which makes them easier to handle, which is kind of part of the point of domestication. And that's another whole fascinating topic, like all of the genetics that goes along with domestication and how we've actually discovered that some that any animal that can be domesticated, there's there are actually like a set of domestication genes that are shared amongst like carp, which can be domesticated into koi and cattle, like wild cattle being domesticated into domestic cattle. Chickens, ducks, geese, horses, dogs, cats, all of these animals actually have a common set of genes that allows them to be domesticated, and it's pretty fascinating. Okay, so let's get back to what we were actually talking about, though. If all you were doing was feeding livestock, then yes, theoretically, a big field of grass might be okay if that's what they eat. And maybe we should jump back to the first part of the question, don't most herbivores eat grass? Actually, no. Most herbivores don't eat that much grass. Now, herbivores like cattle, yes, they do eat mostly grass. Herbivores like deer eat Actually, believe it or not, almost no grass. And then there are herbivores that are in between, like say, elk. Elk actually eat some grass, but some other stuff too. Now, why, why do deer not eat grass? In general, if there's anything else available, deer don't eat grass. And you'd think, why not? It's there. Here's this lush green field of grass. Why are the deer not? wandering out of the woods to graze on my lush green field of grass. Well, think about grass. Grass has these very narrow stalks and blades that are somehow able to stand upright. Now, anything else, any other plant, if it had a stem or leaf that was as long and thin as a blade of grass, it's probably going to fall over. That's because plants contain something called lignum, and lignum is basically the substance that stiffens plant matter to the point where it can have that stiffness of grass because a blade of grass is actually remarkably stiff considering how thin and long it is. So the lignum content of the grass basically is much, much, much higher than the lignum content of say, a dandelion leaf something like that. Now, why does that matter? Well, lignum is very hard to digest. So, the, the more lignum that a plant has in it, the more difficult it is to digest. So, that's why deer basically don't eat grass. Elk eat some grass. Cattle eat a lot of grass because their digestive system is set up to process that. Now, some grasses actually contain even more lignum than other grasses. So, for example, there's a grass called switchgrass, which there are several different species in this general category of switchgrass. But in general, think of switchgrass as being fairly tall and so... Around our property, most, most of the healthy grasses will be maybe a foot or two tall, but the switchgrass, when it's healthy, can be six to eight feet tall. Now, what does it take to create a blade of grass that's a single blade of grass that can stand up and be six or eight feet tall? Well, you guessed it. That takes a lot more lignum. So switchgrass, even compared to these other, other grasses, Trying to remember some of the names of them. Um, common common wild grasses that you might encounter in the United States. There's like big blue stem, little blue stem. Uh, yeah, I'm kind of drawing a blank on the others. There there are a bunch of native grasses here. Anyway, the switchgrass is a native grass, but in order to grow those stalks and leaves that are stalks and blades that are so tall and despite being very, very skinny and so tall, six or eight feet tall, they can still stand up. That takes a huge amount of lignum in those blades of grass, which makes them, like I said, even less digestible to an animal that might eat them. So if I'm walking around and I see a clump of switchgrass, which is a bunch grass, so it has like the crown and then all of it grows out of this crown. It's not really a sod forming grass. Anyway, if I see a bunch or clump of switchgrass and it's been browsed down by the horses or even by whatever, if it's been browsed down, that should be like nearly their last resort food source because it's even less digestible than any of the other grasses out here. So if even the switchgrass is browsed down, which, like I said, they should not even be eating that to begin with. So if that's browsed down to the ground too, that tells me last last resort food source. Now, when would you eat your absolute last resort food source? It's when you literally have nothing else. When you're literally starving. So not only are these horses literally starving, but that also tells me that just the logical conclusion is that the rest of the landscape must be overgrazed if they've eliminated all of those much more desirable food sources and they've resorted to eating the switchgrass. Now, the only thing that might be a less desirable food source than the switchgrass for the for the animals out there would be the cactus. Like, once they start actually browsing on the cactus, then you know things are really, really bad. Okay, so now you might be thinking, well, do I want any grass? If, if grass is so difficult to digest and it's like a last resort food source, why would I want any grass? Well, each of these categories of plants... Serves a purpose and we have to have them in balance, just like everything else in nature, just like everything else in life. Having these things in balance is what's key. So grasses are really good at a couple things. First of all, obviously for any, for any animal that actually eats grass, great. Also, grasses produce seeds and other animals eat the seeds that might not necessarily eat the the stalk or the blades of grass. Um, so a lot of rodents, birds, other small animals actually do eat the seeds from the grass, and it produces a ton of seed. But what else is the grass actually good at? Well, grass. More than any other category of plant, grasses are really good at providing a pathway for water that's on the surface of the ground to To find its way underground. The, the root, the, the blade, stem, crown, root structure of the grass literally captures precipitation as it falls and channels it underground. It literally provides a pathway for it to go from above ground to underground. And as we've talked about so many times, that's so critical. Your precipitation retention rate, which has everything to do with getting that rain or snow or whatever, your precipitation with getting it underground. That's so key. And grasses are really, really good at doing that. Now, before we move on to other types of plants, let's talk about why that's important too. Not, not only is that allowing us to get that moisture underground to grow other types of plants, and to recharge the underground aquifer so that we have quality water in our well. More on that later. But as we've talked about before with hydrology, once we get that water underground, that's that battery, that's that sponge that's going to provide those water sources. And remember, what do we need for wildlife? Food, water, shelter. Those are the basic things. So by Getting that water underground on those upstream hillsides, that's what's going to eventually allow us to have those water sources downhill, whether that's a natural spring, pond, stream, you name it. Capturing that water uphill, sending it underground, that's what's going to allow us to develop an actual, reliable, sustainable water source for our wildlife. So so that's what grass is actually really good at. Um, next category we should talk about is forbs. Now, forbs are basically non-woody plants. So, woody plants would be things that have, like, a trunk that makes sticks, shrubs and trees, basically. Things that actually have part of the plant that you would classify as, oh, this is wood versus a leaf or stem or something like that. So, Forbs are non-woody plants, so they don't have that woody stem or trunk or branches. And they have broad leaves and are usually a flowering plant. So there are lots of these, but a great example that most people are familiar with is dandelions. Now dandelions are where we live, not native, and also classified as invasive, so technically I'm not allowed to like them, even though they taste really good and you can actually eat every single part of a dandelion, the root, the leaves, the stem, the flower. Yeah, they're invasive, so I'm not allowed to like them. Uh, But that's a great example of a forb. Uh, Forbs would also be like clover, um, thistles for that matter, uh, lamb's quarter, like so, so many plants that we that we see all the time would be, would be Forbes. Um, and, and that actually makes up the bulk, at least in the warm season, in the warm seasons, that makes up the bulk of the diet of most of the animals that we're trying to provide food for. So next is shrubs. Now shrubs and trees are basically the same thing, and there's kind of a, a loose delineation between the two that would basically state that shrubs tend to be shorter, trees tend to be taller, trees tend to have a single trunk, although they might have more, and shrubs tend to have many trunks, although they might have fewer. So, let's not really focus on the difference between trees and shrubs, but let's talk about shrubs. Now, shrubs are going to be a perennial plant, so maybe we should have talked about that too because um, most of our forbs are actually annuals, meaning that they, they grow, they produce the leaves, they produce flowers, they get pollinated, they make seed, they go to seed, scatter their seed, die, and hope like species-wide, that enough of that seed was scattered that more of them grow the following year. That's a reproductive strategy that's used by annual plants. Um, Grasses, on the other hand, tend to be actually perennial. Now, there are some annual grasses, but grasses tend to be perennial plants, meaning that they can live for a very, very long time. Like one organism, one grass being... Think of it as a grass animal, even though it's a plant, not an animal, a grass. It's, it's a living thing could live for many, many years, even hundreds of years. One clump of grass might be one organism that's hundreds of years old. And every year it sends its roots down a little deeper and sends its blades and, and stalks up and may or may not make seed in a given year, just depending on the growing conditions. But if it's able to make seed, then it'll produce that seed. Some of that seed gets eaten by animals. Some of it gets scattered by the wind. So so that's kind of a different reproductive strategy. Anyway, shrubs and trees are all perennial, meaning they grow year to year. And I'm sure you've seen like tree rings, where that main trunk or branch of the tree. If you cut through it, you can actually count back year to year because there are visible rings that are formed in every growing season. And and you can actually see, oh, this, this branch is however many years old. Or this whole tree, if you're counting the whole tree ring, the whole cross-section of the trunk, you can actually tell exactly how old that tree is, which is pretty cool. Anyway, all trees and shrubs are perennials. Okay, so what's the what's the value of these? And we should also break them up into oh, probably two broad categories. You could even break them up into two broad categories in different ways. Usually they're broken up into being evergreen or coniferous or deciduous. So, the coniferous evergreens basically don't lose their leaves and they typically have more needle-like structures for their leaves. Think any sort of pine tree or spruce or fir, those are going to be coniferous trees, cedar, lots of different varieties, versus deciduous trees. Think like oaks, maples, aspens, cottonwoods, all sorts of those, Um, which lose their leaves and kind of go dormant over the winter months. Okay. So what's the, what's the habitat benefit of these other than, as you posed in your question, just being pretty, which they are. The, one of the biggest benefits to having trees and shrubs around versus just these forbs and grasses, which I think we've established as a primary food source during the warm season like, it's almost like if you could only have one thing, only have forbs, and that's going to be the best food source for the animals. Although, if you don't have any of these others, they may not show up because one of the main things that trees and shrubs provide is cover structure. And this basically means plant material that is tall enough that they can hide behind it. And that's, that's really all we're talking about. So, if we're limiting ourselves to the best food source, it's probably not going to be tall enough that they can also hide and feel safe. So, that's one of the primary things that these trees and shrubs provide. Now, lucky for us, they also provide some other things too. Um, They can enhance the water availability by casting some shade on the ground, which can decrease our evaporation rate of our precipitation, which increases our absorption rate of the precipitation, increases the overall retention rate, and provides that water source downstream. They can also provide food directly, depending on what type of tree or shrub we're talking about. Um, now this is usually called mast. If you, he- if you hear the term mast, either hard mast or soft mast, soft mast, basically referring to, um, either flowers or fruits, that the animals eat. So an apple tree that produces an apple, that's soft-mast. An oak tree that produces acorns, that's hard-mast. So any sort of nut that's produced by a tree that is a food source for animals, hard-mast lasts longer versus the soft-mast, maybe more digestible, but doesn't last as long. Now, the other thing that our trees and shrubs are going to provide as far as food goes is something called woody browse. And this is usually used in like wildlife biology is usually where you're going to hear that term. This basically means over the winter when they're not more desirable food sources available, the animals are going to resort to this woody browse which is actually more digestible to a lot of these animals than grass even. So the grass is still standing and they're opting to nibble on twigs basically. Now they're going to start with actually the bud ends of all of the little twigs and branches which are going to be the softest most digestible parts. That's where they're going to start, but they'll work their way back to actually, if they're in almost a starvation mode, stripping the bark off of the trees and actually digging down and gnawing on that inner bark of a tree, which may may actually kill the tree. So we don't want to let it get to that point. And that's where managing the grazing pressure and the the food availability and all of that comes into play. But both trees and shrubs can also be a food source. Now, the thing about trees, like we talked about, is they tend to be so much taller than shrubs. Think about this as like when you're walking through some big box store or maybe some larger grocery store and how how often do you see the bottom shelves being empty and all of the food, all of the things that you might want to buy are all the way up on the top shelf. And it's going to take some effort to get up there. Either you have to like pull the little chain aside that says employees only and roll the little rolly ladder over and climb up and get it yourself. Or you have to contact an employee so that they can climb the employees only ladder, or maybe even get on the radio and call in some some forklift support to grab something off the top shelf for you. Well, that's what trees are for wildlife. That's that's top shelf food. It may be producing food, but it's out of reach. Shrubs on the other hand are producing all of this food that's within reach. So, if in some terrible twist of fate I was forced into a situation where I actually had to choose you can only have one of these four categories. And like I, like I said, yes, I know that there are other categories too. There are reeds and sedges and, I don't know, palms and all sorts of stuff. Between grasses, forbs, shrubs, and trees, if I had to choose one for my habitat, I would go with shrubs. Shrubs are providing that, that cover structure. They're providing food, possibly year-round, in the form of leaves, mast, and woody brows. So a shrub is going to be the most likely thing to provide that year-round food. And even though it's not as good as a grass, at least it's some cover on the ground for promoting that moisture retention. So so I'm going to go with shrubs. If I had to choose one and I could only have one, I'm going with shrubs as being the Most important. Um, and if I was ranking them, actually all four, now I'm thinking maybe we'd go. Oh, and it's that's a tough call between Forbes and grass for number two because, because grass really is what you need for that moisture retention. And also, the other thing I should mention about grass is when grass dies and dries out and lays down it provides this thatch layer which is great because that's what actually protects the bare ground it it provides that shield over the bare ground and literally slows down the raindrops because instead of hitting the bare dirt a raindrop will hit that that grass thatch first lose its energy and then it'll give it a chance to soak in it will shelter it from the sun so it gives a little shade, keeps the wind off of it. So we're, we're preventing erosion. We are boosting our precipitation absorption rate. And eventually, as that thatch layer decomposes, it's going to build soil with, or, with, the, with all of that organic matter. Now, why, why are grasses so much better than Forbes at this? It goes back to that lignum content. So, the grasses are less digestible because of the lignum but also because of that higher lignum content they when they die and dry out they persist much better and and can actually build the soil and build that thatch layer that we need Forbes, on the other hand it's amazing when they die and dry out they basically go away to nothing like there's there's really nothing left after they die and dry out so i guess if I had to pick only one thing to have, it would be shrubs. If I had to pick only two, it would be shrubs and grass. If I had to pick three, I'm going shrubs, grass, forbs, because they're just such, such a good food source during that time of year when, say, deer are like growing antlers and trying to put on weight to get ready for the mating season and the harsher winter season and all of that, like you need that one season when they just have plenty of food and forbs are the way to do that. So, yeah, we're gonna go shrubs, then grass, then forbs, and then finally trees. Trees are actually gonna be at the bottom of my list. As much as I love trees, I think they're the least important factor of those four because um, they're basically a shrub that just has food that's out of reach. Yeah, they're pretty, but, but honestly, that's about it. And don't get me wrong. I'm a, I'm a big fan of trees. I love trees. I work my butt off trying to plant and grow trees out here for all of their value. But when it really comes to big picture habitat restoration and looking at these different categories of plants, the trees should actually be kind of your last priority amongst those four categories of plants. Okay. I'm, I'm looking over your question again to make sure that I actually answered it because I almost don't, don't remember what you were asking. Oh, about herbivores eating grass and if grass should make up the entire property. I think we've sufficiently answered that. So you kind of get the picture now of what it would look like if, if you had a whole property of grass and nothing else. You're really not going to be providing the food or cover that the animals need. So yeah, that's, that's why that wouldn't work. All right, let's go ahead and move on to the next question. And this is kind of fun grouping the questions together like this into Q and a, that's just habitat restoration and habitat improvement, land restoration questions. Cause you guys kind of have me excited about all of the land restoration stuff. Just like I get fired up about a lot of stuff um, so maybe we'll do this again. I'm, I'm enjoying this. I hope you are too. I've actually gotten a lot of questions lately about like orienteering and land navigation stuff. So we haven't actually even done our land nav episodes yet. And we already have almost enough questions for a QA. Plenty of questions for a QA episode on that. So maybe we'll go ahead and. Get those episodes cranked out and try to answer most of your questions in the episodes. Anyway, let's get back to our questions for this episode. So question number three. Okay, this this one's interesting. Aren't horses native to North America going all the way back to the Pleistocene? you're always talking about eliminating invasive species and promoting native species. So why exclude the native wild horses from your property? So this actually reminds me from, reminds me of some advice that I got from a friend, which was, I'm trying to remember exactly how he put it. Basically something to the effect of don't attempt to give a correct answer to a question with an incorrect premise. And I think that's kind of where we're at with this question. So let's go ahead and answer it honestly, though. So aren't horses native to North America going all the way back to the Pleistocene? Yes, technically yes. But there were several, many actually, many native species of horses that we know about In North America, back in the Pleistocene era. Now, most of those were much, much, much smaller than our modern horses. Also, from the best we can tell, all of those went extinct, we're going to say 12 to 13,000 years ago. And arguably, they went extinct by natural causes, not man-made causes. So, that aside, let's go back to the history of the issue. So, we believe that horses from North America, at least one or more species, crossed the Bering Land Bridge, going the other direction as humans, maybe they waved on the way past, um, crossed the Bering Land Bridge into... Northeast Asia. From there, one or more species was used over the course of thousands of years to create a domestic animal that's the modern domesticated horse. We're talking about a process that took thousands of years of selective breeding for humans to create this, this, I hesitate to call it a man-made animal, but that's basically what domesticated animals are. They would only exist through the interference, through the action of humans. So humans took some sort of wild horse stock, and this happened so long ago that we don't even know exactly what species they used. Just like all of our other domesticated animals, we don't know Exactly what species domestic cattle came from or domestic goats or domestic sheep. We have guesses, but that's it. So same thing over the course of thousands of years, humans optimized this animal for what we wanted to use a horse for. Now jump forward to the 1500s. So we're talking post Christopher Columbus 1500s, Europeans then bring the domesticated horse, to North America. Uh, through various means, some of those horses ended up being released into the wild to live on their own, whether that was intentional, unintentional, whatever. There's there's a lot of fascinating history about how this happened with Spanish horses and all all of this, and we end up with horses living on their own in the wild, but they are domestic horses. They are not, I repeat, they are not the same thing that went extinct twelve to 13,000 years ago in North America. Now, there are educated people out there who have their opinion, and I'm going to go ahead and disagree with them. There are people out there who would suggest that the introduction of domesticated horses into the wilds of North America in the 1500s was simply a reintroduction of something that had gone extinct and should have naturally been reintroduced. I'm going to disagree with that for a couple of reasons. First of all, like I said, we're talking about a completely different animal. This would be like if... Let's say that the African wild dog went extinct. And now these are, these are a rare animal and they're an absolutely beautiful, fascinating animal. The African wild dog. If you're not familiar with them, look it up because they're beautiful and fascinating and they run in packs and they're spotted and really cool animals and a very unique animal. What these people are suggesting would be the equivalent of saying, Okay. The African wild dog went extinct. Not to worry. In the United States, we have all of these animal shelters with stray pit bulls. Nothing against pit bulls. I love pit bulls, but we have all of these animal shelters with stray pit bulls. So we're going to take all of our stray pit bulls and release them in the wilds of Africa as packs of feral dogs and pretend that that replaces the African wild dog that went extinct. That's that's the same line of thought that's being pursued by these people who would suggest that the reintroduction, quote, reintroduction of domestic horses is just a reintroduction of a species that should have been here anyway. So, So that's one of the problems I have with it is because it's not the same animal. The next, I guess, problem that I have with it is you've probably heard me talk about on the podcast before about like, why not just let nature run its course? And I have this theory of like man-made problem, man-made solution. So if if humans were the ones that caused a problem to begin with, then yes, go ahead and use our human interference to try to correct that problem. If, if a so called problem occurred naturally, then maybe just let nature run its course. For example, like dinosaurs going extinct. That had nothing to do with human interference, so humans don't need to interfere to bring back dinosaurs. And that's the same thing we're talking about here. If, if the extinction of wild horses in North America was just part of the natural history of our world then we don't need to interfere to try to bring them back. And I guess the the last reason would be that you're only putting in one piece of the puzzle if you're going to try to do that. Like let's let's say it was the same species, like identical to the species that died out and also we determined that there was some human involvement in in that species dying out, well, we're just introducing one piece of the puzzle instead of that whole balanced ecosystem that we've talked about. So it's like in that case, I might be okay with it as long as we were simultaneously reintroducing the entire suite of species that went extinct around the same time, which would include, of course, saber-toothed cats. All sorts of giant scary pigs. Um, woolly mammoths. Some weird like camels with long noses. What else? Short faced bears. Short faced bears, probably the scariest of all of these because they think that the short faced bear was such a vicious predator that <laughs> the fact that its extinction coincides with the human expansion into North America is not due to humans hunting them, but is due to the fact that they are such a fierce predator that humans were incapable of living in an environment that had these. So we actually could not even expand into North America until they went extinct naturally. So anyway, if you're going to present me with an argument that you're simply reintroducing one species that naturally went extinct 13,000 years ago... If we're going to do that, like, how are we going to, how is that species going to be managed and in balance with its ecosystem unless we have the entire suite of species that it existed with at that time? So that's, that's kind of my last problem with that argument. Okay. So a couple more things to cover with why I'm excluding the quote, wild horses from my property. Okay. Even if. These horses were descended from the Spanish horses that came over in 1500, in the 1500s. And they're a symbol of the American West and all of that um, emotional, logical fallacy, the appeal to emotion, all of that. Even if that were true, which it's not, because we actually can do genetic testing on most of the herds of, quote, Mustangs in the American West and turns out that they're actually descended primarily from horses that were released during the Great Depression when people couldn't afford to feed them. Not that long ago, we're talking, we're talking within the last hundred years. That's where most of these herds of horses came from. So this isn't even a symbol of the American West. This is something that happened Like I said, within the last hundred years. Furthermore, on top of that, the specific herd that I am dealing with and excluding from my property is a privately owned herd of domestic horses that they pretend are wild horses so that they get the sympathy of all of these people who make these other arguments. It's actually an individual's private livestock that I'm dealing with, not wild animals, not wildlife. So, I hope that answers your question about why me excluding the horses from my property to eliminate the overgrazing is not interfering with a natural process in the least. That actually leads in really well to question four. So, next question. I've always heard that a certain amount of grazing was healthy for the land. Why would you want to completely eliminate it? I'm not trying to sound critical because your results are obviously amazing. Thank you. Thank you for the little ego boost there. But could you possibly get better results by incorporating some grazing into your program? Okay, basically yes to all of your questions. Um, I've always heard that a certain amount of grazing is healthy for the land. Yes, that is true. Okay, why would you want to completely eliminate it? Okay, here's where where I need to clarify. I have not completely eliminated grazing from the land. I have only eliminated the grazing of the so-called wild horses, which eliminating that amount of grazing was enough to eliminate the overgrazing on the property. We'll talk about the difference between overgrazing, undergrazing, and maybe, I don't know, just grazing, sufficient grazing, ideal grazing, medium grazing, in In just a minute. um, Let's unpack the question a little more. Uh, okay, so I have not completely eliminated grazing because all of the true wildlife is still because of the way that I built our fence, is still able to come onto the property to graze all of our grasses, forbs, shrubs, all of that. And also, I would add a certain amount of disturbance of any type is actually really good for the environment in general. So that's not just grazing, but that also includes fire. And fire is a natural process. And Unfortunately, mankind has interfered enough where fire has become something that's really dangerous on our landscape instead of something that's just a natural process that really, really helps and makes things better. It's amazing how fire can regenerate a landscape and just all of the things that it does are really cool. That's, that's another subject for another episode. Let me give you an analogy. So, if, with with what I did, with the way that I took over the land that I'm managing, with the condition that it was in, if I approached that by saying, well, I know that a certain amount of grazing is good for the land, which is true, that would be similar to me riding in the back of an ambulance with someone who has a tourniquet on their arm who's who we're working to stop the bleed to keep them alive until we can get them to the emergency room at a hospital. Me saying, you know, actually a certain amount of cardio is pretty good for somebody. Now's not the time for that cardio workout While we have a tourniquet on their arm, I'm dealing with land that has a tourniquet on its arm at this point where it's been so damaged that we have to, we have to take some emergency measures to repair it before we could, as, as you pointed out, absolutely, absolutely apply that measured amount of managed grazing, which ends up being really, really good for the land. So, Long term, part of the big benefit of putting a fence up to eliminate the overgrazing is that once I have rehabilitated the land to the point where it needs that grazing or where that grazing pressure would even help, would make it better, I now have a fence where I could possibly, if I want to, and eventually do plan on doing, I could release some of my own livestock and have them fenced in, whether that's sheep, goats, cattle, camels, llamas, rhinoceros, whatever's going to graze that I want to use to provide that grazing pressure. I shouldn't say rhinoceros because my fence is not going to keep them in if they wanted to leave. Anyway... Yes, that is actually something that is in our long-term plan is actually having some very well-managed and monitored grazing on our land to actually improve the land even more. So we're absolutely going to do that, and we plan on cooperating with our neighbors also, and it'd be even better if we could have like Several fenced properties adjacent to each other where we could do rotational grazing and move some livestock, whether that's cattle or whatever, from one, from one property to another throughout the season and, and really optimize the, the benefits of that disturbance that's caused by grazing. So, Yes, you're you're absolutely right that grazing is beneficial, but you don't do it to the the patient in the back of the of the ambulance with the tourniquet on their arm, telling them that they really need to work on their cardio. So that's kind of where we're at right now. Um, now, how do we manage that? And I think we've talked about this before, but one very very general rule of thumb and. Yes, this is, I realize this is very general rule, and there are a whole lot more details that go into it, but think about basically a 50% rule, and that's what I like to call it, is the 50% rule, where if I add up all of my grazing pressure from, it doesn't matter if it's coming from domestic livestock or wildlife or whatever, the combination of all of that grazing pressure, if I am consuming less than 50% of the forage produced by a piece of land, the following season that piece of land will produce more. It will be improved. If I'm consuming more than 50% of the forage produced by a piece of land the following year, that same piece of land will produce less forage. So no matter what I do, following that rule of thumb, I just have to make sure that when I introduce that managed grazing and it's, it's pretty easy. The information is out there on like, if I have three cows, how much are they going to eat in a one month period? Like literally by weight, how much are they going to eat and how much am I producing? How many acres do I have? And it's pretty easy to figure out how to stay above that 50% mark where they're consuming less than half or they and the wildlife in combination are consuming less than half of the overall forage that I'm producing. And the next year, the property is even better. So I hope that answered your question. And we're back again. It seems like I'm not getting any like really long chunks of time to be able to sit down and record a whole episode. So we're going to go with it, which kind of lends itself to a and a type episode, because hopefully I can sit down and answer a whole question before I get interrupted again and have to go do something else. So realized I was getting kind of sleepy last night. So I hope whatever I was talking about actually made sense. We're just going to go with it. Next question, question number five. I think we have six questions. So we're getting there. Uh, question number five. You mentioned on one of your land restoration episodes that slowing down the movement of water is actually not, quote, robbing water from your downstream neighbors. I guess I'm not quite following how that works. Anytime you're stopping water upstream, doesn't that result in less water downstream? Maybe you could explain this again because this concept fascinates me. Okay. So this is, this is one of those things that would definitely be easier to explain and demonstrate if I could draw some pictures. I realize this is audio only format, so I'll give it my best shot. But maybe this would be a good topic to do a video on to kind of answer the same question and actually show you how this works with a video. So maybe I'll work on that. First thing to understand is when any type of precipitation falls, there are a handful of things that can happen to that, that water. So, and each of these is going to have a, a quantifiable value associated with it. If you want to look at that as inches, usually precipitations measured in, in a depth of like inches, centimeters, whatever. So, so that's, that's kind of the first variable is the amount of precipitation, a measurable amount of precipitation. And that can be measured in a single event in a day, in a week, a month, annual precipitation over the course of a whole year. But that's going to be measured, like I said, as a depth. So let's say that we have one event and let's say we get one inch of precipitation. Now of that one inch, there are several things that can happen to it. You have runoff. That's that's the first thing that can happen. That tends to happen when you have bare ground, especially bare dry ground, most of it just runs off. Now, after that event, the sun comes back out and warms everything up and you have a certain amount, if it's still sitting on the surface, if it hasn't actually run off yet and has not soaked in, you have a certain amount of evaporation. So, let's say we get that one inch of precipitation and typically that's going to be subdivided down into tenths of inches. So of that one inch, let's say that we have 0.5 inches that runs off. And let's say that we have another 0.2 inches that evaporates. So that leaves 0.3 inches that's actually penetrating the soil, that's actually being absorbed. So that would actually be what's called a 30 30% precipitation absorption rate. Now, what might that look like? Well, just to give you an example, many places, especially places where there's conventional agriculture going on with, say, row crops of corn or soybeans, something like that, your actual precipitation retention rate is probably closer to 10%. And you have more of a 90% of that runoff and evaporation. And, and your actual retention rate is very, very low. More like, like I said, 10%. Now in a healthy environment, your actual retention rate might be closer to 90% or even higher. So you can see how the, your actual precipitation retention rate ends up being so much more important than your annual precipitation because if I'm, let's say that I'm absorbing 90%, somebody else is only absorbing 10%, and they get twice as much precipitation annually, or five times as much precipitation annually, I'm still capturing more water that's then available to the plants that are growing. So, like I said, you see how that, that retention rate is really way more important than, um, than your actual precipitation rate. Okay, so moving on. So we have that 0.3 inches, that remaining 30% that actually gets a chance to soak into the ground. And like we talked about in one of the earlier questions, one of the main things that helps it soak into the ground is having a healthy soil layer over covered by a healthy thatch layer and healthy grasses with a good root system. And that does several things. First of all, That thatch layer that's actually covering the ground absorbs the energy as that raindrop actually falls. And this is going on on a micro scale, but it has a huge impact where instead of falling directly on the bare dirt and creating that little splatter of mud and then running, mostly running off, it's actually hitting that, that thatch layer as it falls, which slows it down. So by the time it actually gets down to the ground, it's barely moving. It's slowed down so much that it can just gently soak into the soil. Another thing that actually makes a big difference is having the the soil that the water needs to soak into, having that already be damp. It already needs to have a certain moisture content. Now, if you've ever had a potted plant and you've forgotten to water it, which all of us have, and you pour water on it, you're like, oh no, I haven't watered it for like Three weeks, it's, it's dying. It's the soil's all dry and you pour just a little bit of water on it and you see that water just pull up on the surface. And then what usually happens is it pulls up and then it looks like it's running down, but it's actually just running down between the pot and the dried soil and then runs out the bottom and spills out and makes a big mess. As opposed to if you remember to water your plant frequently, that soil in the pot stays damp. And you can pour a little water on and it immediately soaks in and doesn't run out the bottom. Well, what's going on there actually has to do with the surface tension of water. And basically, if there's water already there, the water that you add has somewhere to go. It can like stick to that water that's already there and gets soaked in. If there's no water there, then it has a really hard time wanting to move in there because of its own surface tension. So that's kind of what happens. So adding that that thatch layer also cools the ground a little and prevents that evaporation off the surface. So you tend to have more moisture in the soil, which then is able to capture more of that precipitation, which in turn creates more moisture in the soil. So you see how the process kind of feeds itself. It's kind of what nature tends to do. Okay, where were we? So, So we ended up with 0.3 0.3 inches actually soaking in. Now of that, there are kind of two things that can happen with it. We're going to have uh, three things that can happen. We'll say two things that can happen with it. The main thing is going to be recharging, basically recharging our underground water supply. And that goes from the, the water that's immediately beneath the surface that the plant's roots can actually reach down into, and that also goes for the deeper water, the deeper aquifers. Most places, those are getting their water, albeit after a while, it takes a while to soak down, those deep aquifers that you would drill a well into, those are getting their water from precipitation. It's just slowly filtered down through that soil to make it down that deep. But if you don't have the appropriate level of absorption of your precipitation, eventually your well is going to go dry. Now the other side of that coin is if you're able to increase your precipitation absorption rate, that's going to have a direct effect on the quality and quantity of your well water If you're using a well, as all of you know, we are using a well here. When we first drilled it, it was actually of marginal quality, like totally safe to drink, definitely potable, but it, it did have relatively high concentrations of sodium carbonate and bicarbonate. That's not going to hurt you, at least in normal concentrations. That's not going to hurt you. Anything in too high of a concentration can be dangerous, but, um, that also made the water naturally soft, which isn't terrible. It's great for cleaning and bathing and laundry and all of that. But it it does give it like a salty flavor. And um, anyway, uh, we've talked about that before. And we, not great for aquariums, not great for watering plants, especially potted plants, because that ends up building up in the soil and so on. We, we've actually succeeded in improving... The quality and quantity of our well water by the work that we're doing on the surface. And we'll do more on that later. We may do a whole episode on that, um, or maybe a video or something, so I can kind of show you how that has worked. Anyway, um, that is one of the things that happens with that water. So like I said, as you can see, even if you're using a well, it's critically important for long-term sustainability to pay attention to those, those, um, precipitation retention rates. So, like, when I see an irrigated crop field, say a center pivot crop field of some sort, and let's say that they have a well drilled right in the middle, or they're supplying water from the well via pipe to the middle of the center pivot, which spins in a circle and irrigates the crops, I know if I look at that ground and I see mostly bare dirt, I know that the water that is falling on that ground is having a very low retention rate, maybe around that 10% level. And the fact in a lot of places, the fact that you're even having to irrigate and not depending on precipitation is a problem to begin with. And on top of that, that well water that you're pumping into that center center pivot irrigator Has to come from somewhere. That has to come from that rainwater. So if your rainwater is running off and not penetrating, that's just not sustainable long term. And this isn't some political view on how we're doing agriculture. This is just physics. It's just math. It's not even hard math. It's adding and subtracting. Okay, so back to the question. I don't want to get sidetracked too far. So that 0.3 inches that soaked in some of that's going, going to go to our recharge where we're recharging the underground water for the plants and for the well. We'll say it's for the well, sure, whatever. Another part of that is actually taken up by the plants that are growing, by the trees and shrubs and grasses because everybody need, everybody knows plants need water to grow. So they're actually going to suck that up through their roots. Now, that the fun thing here is is you might think, oh, so does that is that bad if I have too many plants? Is that actually reducing the amount of water that's making it down into the ground? It would seem like that, but no, because here's the thing. One of the magical things about plants is their ability to increase that penetration rate by decreasing the runoff has a way more of an impact than the amount of water that they actually take up So for example, if let's say that we get that one inch of rain in, in a rain event, if you have plants that are using say 0.01 inches of that, like that's, that's the amount of water that's actually being sucked up from the roots of the plant into the plant's body to keep the plant alive one hundredth of an inch, the amount of plant matter that that hundredth of an inch of actual uptake grows is going to increase your precipitation retention rate probably by something more like 50%. So those plants are going to use that. They're going to actually use that hundredth of an inch of water. But in exchange for that, they're taking half an inch of water that would have otherwise either evaporated or run off and sending it underground. So the actual water that's utilized, that's truly utilized by the plants is, is really minimal. Okay. So, so we've created this environment now where, where the precipitation is able to fall on the ground and it gets a chance to soak in before it either runs off or evaporates. Great. So what happens to this underground water? We already talked about how some of it goes deeper and kind of recharges where we would tap in for a well. Some of it goes underground and feeds the plants roots, not feeds, waters, keeps the plants hydrated. That's what they tap into. But that water does continue to move. Now, what direction does it move? There are some more variables, but the simplest way to think about it is once it's underground, it's going to continue to move underground in the same direction as it would have otherwise moved on the surface, so basically downhill. It's just moving downhill underground. Now, eventually some of that may actually come back to the surface in the form of a natural spring, which we're actually going to cover in the next question, so I'm going to hold off on that, but it's still moving downhill or downstream to the neighbors who would have received that water as runoff anyway. Now, here's the thing, and maybe, maybe you're already seeing where I'm going with this. What we've done is by capturing more of that water and sending it underground, our plants are are using such a tiny percentage of that water that the vast majority of it still ends up moving downhill or downstream, however you want to think about that. What we've done though, is we've changed two main things about the way that they're getting that water. And maybe, let me give you an analogy. So imagine that you had a trash can, just a big plastic trash can. And that trash can represents your your land that you're working with. And we're going to drill a hole in the bottom of that trash can. Think about drilling like a one-inch hole. Okay. And the top of the trash can's open. Now that one-inch hole... That's the outlet from your property to your neighbor's property. So the water is going to flow from from your trash can. let's say that they have a trash can too. So yours is perched above theirs, and the water is going to flow downhill from your trash can through that hole in the bottom of the trash can into your neighbor's property. Now, let's say that we take a bucket, fill it up with water, and dump it into the trash can what's going to happen to that water well it's going to flow out the hole that may seem obvious now the thing is though it all flows out immediately after we dump it in and then we're and that bucket i should say that represents like getting a rainstorm so we get that rainstorm we dump the bucket in there and the water all flows down onto our neighbor's property so so they get they're shot at it too. And then, you know, downstream, we can have an infinite line of, not infinite. We can have a long line of these trash cans as the water moves through everybody's property all the way down to the ocean. Sure. And everybody gets their, their crack at it as the water flows through. Now, what could we do that would be similar to slowing down the water and getting it underground? Like we've talked about by changing our surface structure. Let's say that we had a bunch of rags and towels, not dirty rags, clean rags, towels, clean bath towels. There we go. And we're going to stack all of those clean bath towels into our trash can. Now we're going to do the same thing. We're going to take that bucket of water. Oh, and I I kind of skipped ahead. Okay. So the thing is, maybe it's going to be a week before that next rainstorm or a month or maybe it's the next day, or maybe we have a huge rainstorm and we dump five buckets in there all at once. Well, our neighbor just gets that water as it runs through whenever. But what we're doing is we're stacking those, those bath towels in there. Now you can imagine, take that same bucket, fill it up with water and dump it into the top of your trash can. And what happens? Well, those bath towels soak up all of that water. And right at first, maybe there's not going to be any of that water coming out of that one inch hole in the bottom. But then we dump another bucket in and those towels soak up more water. Now, eventually that water is going to kind of hydrate those bath towels and its gravity is still going to be pulling it down toward the bottom of our trash can. And eventually we're going to see a little drip coming out of the bottom of the trash can. Now we might be able to wait a week and we still have that constant drip. And then we throw another bucket in there. We still kind of have that constant drip. And then we wait a week and dump another bucket in there. We have another rainstorm and it adds some water to the top of our trash can. And it it just, you know, maybe there's a little more in there. Maybe there's a little less, but we have that more consistent drip coming out onto our neighbor's trash can slash property. Now we have a real gully washer and we take five buckets and we dump them in there. Well, guess what? Our neighbor does not get a flash flood. They still just get that consistent drip. And I'm sure you can imagine, what if we wanted to actually grow something in our trash can? Well, if the trash can's empty, it's we're going to dump water on it and then everything dries out and the plant dies or... We throw some seed in there, it never sprouts because it just dries out. But if we have that constant level of moisture in our ground, this trash can, as the analogy goes, we're going to be able to take our seeds, plant them in there, and guess what? They're going to sprout because they have that constant source of water instead of waiting for that rain that we don't actually know when it's coming. And maybe when it does come, then it's too much and it washes the seed away, we can mitigate that whole problem simply by getting that water slowed down and moving it underground. Now, the other thing that we're doing for our neighbor, and I'm sure you can see how, like, if you're my neighbor downstream and you're trying to grow stuff or have a nice little stream with with a pond or something, would you prefer to have that constant steady stream of water although it's it's small, but it's constant, or to have long dry spells and then get a bunch of water all at once and then a long dry spell and get a bunch of water all at once, which causes more erosion, does more damage. You don't know when it's coming. You don't know how long it's going to be that you have to survive without having that supply of water. I'm sure you can see how it it just works a lot better for everybody to have that constant supply of water. And you're still getting the same amount of water just in a more usable form. Now, the other thing that we're doing here, the ground acts as a filter also, just like those towels would. So let's say that you're downstream from my trash can. We're using tr- clean trash cans for this, by the way. And um, let's say for whatever reason that the water that I'm dumping in the top is kind of muddy, but that's that's what you have to get. And you're going to have to drink it. Would you rather that I had that one hole in the bottom of my trash can and just dump that muddy water in and it drains out into your bucket and that's what you have for your drinking water or would you prefer that I filled my trash can up with those beach towels which are gonna act as a filter and the water that's coming out of the bottom of my trash can is much, much cleaner? Well, that's the other thing that we're doing exactly that with the land by moving that water underground That water's actually getting filtered. It's actually actively being filtered. Now, if it's flowing across the surface, causing erosion, well, it's carrying all of those, the things it's eroding, the dirt that it's eroding ends up in the water, and it's actually getting dirtier. So I've actually done two things that benefit my downstream neighbors. I have stabilized the water supply so that they don't have to deal with the flood and drought cycle. And I've actually cleaned the water for them. So I hope that makes sense. I hope my analogy wasn't too ridiculous. The, the one other thing to kind of understand on this is that you're going to hear what's kind of conventional water management thought, which has to do, which is basically the idea that you divert, channelize and eliminate water. So whatever water falls on the ground in the form of rain, usually. You're going to divert it from where you don't want to have standing water, channelize it. So you're going to think think about having a a long, narrow canal and all the water flows into that canal. And then we eliminate it by flowing that water back down to the ocean. Well, you can kind of see how that's the opposite of the approach that we were just talking about where what I want to do is slow it down, spread it out and soak it in. And that's, in my opinion, that's just all around the better way to do it. Um, for all these reasons that we've talked about, we end up with cleaner water, we end up with less erosion, we end up with less pollution, we end up with more water that we can use, both just the water that's in the ground that the plants have access to all the time, and if we're actually pumping water out of the ground using a well, We actually have more water available for that too. So those are kind of the the two competing lines of thought. Okay. One more question for today, and then we'll wrap it up. So last question, you mentioned that you expect to see natural springs eventually emerge on the property. Do you have any idea where they will be, or are you just going to wait and see? I ask because I'm helping my brother-in-law with a similar habitat improvement project in the hill co- in the Texas Hill Country. We had thought about installing a pond liner and just filling it up as needed, but a natural spring would be way better. Yes, I agree about that. Agree with that for sure. Uh, listening to the podcast, we've rethought how we were how we were using feeders as well. In Texas, deer feeders are very common, but We're now really trying to, really trying to truly improve the habitat more than just improving our chances of harvesting deer. It seems like developing a natural water source would be along the same lines. This is a 160 acre property that is largely covered in a variety of six to 10 foot shrubs. So if we weren't looking in just the right spot, we might not even notice that a natural spring had emerged. Do you have any pointers on where to look for these springs to emerge? So, to answer your question briefly, yes, I do. And we're going to get to that. And I actually have a really fun story for you about that thing exactly. But before we do, you hit on a point that I think is really important to emphasize, and that's sustainability. And that's exactly what you're talking about when you're talking about. Improving the habitat to have all of these natural food sources for the wildlife versus just putting in a deer feeder or dumping a pile of corn on the ground or something like that. Uh, The same thing with developing a natural spring, like restoring a natural spring versus just having a stock tank or a pond or something out there that you could fill up to provide water for the wildlife. Because it's like, in one in one case, you're actually fixing the natural habitat so that nature's in balance and the wildlife just becomes part of that. On the other hand, you're doing something artificial that requires continued input from you. So long term, the sustainable approach, the natural approach is actually going to be way less work and a lot more rewarding. So for example, like the deer feeder that you brought up. Yes, it's true. If you install a deer feeder, maybe there will be more deer on your land, or maybe you'll at least see more deer on your land, but you have not actually increased the carrying capacity of the land itself. Uh, Same thing with the water, because as soon as you aren't there to fill up that feeder or fill up that stock tank, those deer are going to go elsewhere to find food and water. Now, if you've actually changed the habitat and created those water sources and food sources and all of that, you've actually increased the carrying capacity of that piece of land. And that same sustainability idea doesn't just go for habitat improvement. That goes for basically everything in life. Um, Not to get too philosophical here, but that goes for work and relationships and managing people and obviously agriculture, uh, as we've kind of already talked about a few times on on this episode with our other questions. But think about this action that I'm taking and apply this to anything. This action that I'm taking, is this a one-time action that's going to get the results that I want right now without actually improving the overall situation Or is this a long-term investment that's actually going to improve the entire situation that we find ourselves in? So so that's kind of that sustainability idea. Anyway, I love what you're doing. It sounds like a great project and I'm really glad that you're rethinking how you're going about it and actually being interested in improving your habitat itself with these food sources and water sources, not just artificially adding the food and water to your system. So good work, congratulations. Keep it up, and keep me updated too, because this sounds like a really cool project. Send me some pictures. Uh, to answer your question though, how how do you go about finding these natural points where a spring would naturally emerge? So this doesn't just apply to habitat restoration either, and I'm gonna I'm gonna give you the exact technique that I use. It's really simple, but some other applications would be a survival situation. If you are out in an area and you need to find water in a survival situation, you could waste a whole lot of time just trekking around looking for water. And yeah, you could always walk downhill until you find water because eventually that will work. Eventually you will find water if you just walk downhill now, the thing is, though, that might not be the best water, and it might be a really long ways away. Um, cause, you know, the further downhill you get, the more chance that water has had to run through, oh, I don't know, a cow pasture or something like that. And we all know what cows do in their water. So if you end up downstream of that, that can be a little dicey when it comes to drinking that without also um, treating it, purifying it, filtering it, all of that. So anyway, um, so in a survival situation, you can also use this technique to just be more efficient in your search for maybe a stream or a spring, excuse me, a spring that's just bubbling right out of the ground. And oftentimes those springs, although I'm generally still going to recommend some sort of filtration or treatment or boiling of that water to keep you safe. Generally, those springs, because that water is coming out of the ground, and like we talked about, the ground acts as a filter that's usually going to be really good clean water. At the very least, it's going to taste better than what you found downstream from the cow pasture. And You also mentioned in your question that you guys are hunting deer. You can also apply this if you're hunting a new area that you've never hunted before, locating some of those water sources, I mean, the animals need water too. And every time that I've found a water source, an isolated water source in an area where water is scarce, well, guess what goes right along with that is a whole lot of animal activity going to and from that water source and just concentrated around it so that that can be a great place to, to hunt or or at least to stage yourself or start to pattern some animals. Anyway, um, how do we actually do this? Let's, it's actually pretty simple. Now, I like to do it if I have a topographical map available. That's where I'll actually start. Because humans, myself included, are actually really, really, really bad at judging topography, topography accurately simply by eye like actually estimating slopes and level contours and all of that stuff. We're just really bad at it. So if I have a topo map, that's where I'm going to start. If not, you can do it by just by eye, by walking around and you'll kind of get the idea. You may just not be as accurate and and it may take some more time and you may miss some things. So first step is if you can get a good topo map of the area where you're looking. And get the highest resolution topo that you can also. And by highest resolution, I basically mean a map that, okay, so low resolution would be like one that has a topographical contour every 100 feet of elevation versus every 20 feet. Or if you can get one, get get a map that has those topo lines every five feet of elevation or every one foot of elevation. Go for the highest resolution that you can find on those topographical maps. So, going to do two things with that map. The first thing that we're going to do is we're going to identify contours where the steepness, where the grade of a hill makes a sudden change. Now, if you look at hills and stuff, you might think, oh, it gradually changes from being less steep to more steep as I walk up the hill, or let's pretend like we're water. So we're flowing down the hill and You might think, oh, it's just going to gradually change from being more steep to less steep as it gets close to the bottom. Well, in reality, most of the time, oftentimes, it's actually a very abrupt change from a fairly consistent pitch of the hill to a different, fairly consistent pitch of the hill. So as you're walking downhill, it goes from being very steep to a little less steep at a certain contour and I would recommend going out and just starting to look at topography with this in mind and look at those, just visually identify those points where the pitch of the land makes an abrupt change. Now, visually, what's the, what will this look like on a topo map? Well, it's basically going to be a point where the lines, the topographical lines go from being relatively evenly spaced and close together to relatively evenly spaced and further apart. Now, if they're evenly spaced, that means we're dealing with basically a constant pitch going up. The closer they are together, the steeper that, the steeper that grade is on that hillside. So what you're going to do is take like a colored pencil or something and at that contour where it makes that sudden change from being more steep to less steep. I'm not talking about from going downhill to uphill or from going downhill to perfectly flat. What you're really looking for ideally here is where it goes We're continuing downhill, but just going from more steep to less steep. So look for that point, like I said, where the lines go from being closely spaced together and then they suddenly go as you work your way down the hill to being a little further apart. Take your colored pencil, parallel to those contour lines, draw a line or even trace over one of those contour lines where you think that that transition actually happens from being more steep to less steep. Okay. The next thing that you're going to do is to identify draws. Now, I think one of the best ways to explain this is actually the way that most military land nav manuals explain it. And that's to make a fist and go ahead and actually do this while you, while you're listening. Make a fist and hold that out in front of you, palm side down with your four knuckles up. So we all have this. Now, we're going to use this this fist to demonstrate various terrain features. Each of your knuckles is a hill, okay? Now, if you draw a line through your four knuckles that are pointed up, that's a ridge. Now, the tops of your four fingers as they come down from those knuckles, and there's some others too that we're not going to get into. These are the the main ones that I want you to understand for this particular discussion the tops of those four fingers that come downhill from those knuckles those are called spurs now the little cracks between your fingers that run between those spurs those are called draws so if you look at a hill and you see or like a, a ridge line that has maybe several hills along the ridge okay and then okay so this this hillside is actually divided into a series of spurs and draws. Now the water is naturally going to flow down those draws. Now just because water naturally flows down those draws does not mean that there is water flowing down those draws right now. Maybe it's been a long time since it rained. So what we're going to do now on our topo map is we're going to identify those draws. And basically as you're looking at a topo map, that's going to be a Think of it as a series of V's that points up toward the top of the hill. If those V's are pointing down, you're talking about a spur. If they're pointed uphill, you're talking about a draw. Now what you're going to do is take your colored pencil... And instead of going parallel to the contour lines this time, we're going to go perpendicular to the contour lines, drawing a line directly down each of those draws. So we may have identified several places on the property where we have those transition points from more steep to less steep. And we have several lines drawn with our colored pencil on along all of those contours. And then we may have many of these little draws on the property, and we have, with our colored pencil, drawn lines perpendicular to the contours along all of those draws. Now, if we have a series of lines that's parallel to the contours and a series of lines that's perpendicular to the contours, you can probably see where this is going, we're going to have a bunch of intersections of those lines. So anywhere that one of your draws crosses one of your transition points, just make a little circle. And that's what we're going to really be looking for is those intersections between the draw and the transition point in the grade of the hill. And doing it this way is even more important. The larger the property is that we need to search for these uh, for these possible springs. And also, like you mentioned, your property is mostly covered in six to 10 foot tall shrubs, which makes it very difficult to, to get a good view from like a, a hilltop where you could just walk up and say, oh, you know, if you had if you're out on the prairie on grasslands or something, it's pretty easy to get up high and just look and see where there might be water. Um, in your situation though, it sounds like the visibility is probably a little more obstructed, which is also telling me that you have a whole lot of cover for wildlife, which is great, but you're not going to be able to necessarily see one of these springs until you're right on top of it. So, Get that topo map out, do this, circle those intersection points. And the more precise you can be in your technique when you're doing this, the better results you'll get. So draw that little circle at those intersection points, and then go ahead and just get the GPS coordinates of that point, the latitude and longitude, or UTM if you're using UTM. We'll talk more about that when we get into some of our land navigation episodes. But plug those into your GPS each of those intersection points and then get out on the property and actually walk to each of those precise points. Start at that point and just start looking around. You can do a little search grid if you want to or kind of spiral out from that point and and just take a look and see if there's a spot where it looks like maybe there is a spring already or maybe it looks like in the past there was a spring. So, So that's kind of the technique that I want you to use and let me know how that goes and let me know what you find. So I mentioned that I actually had a story for you about doing this. So we actually did this on our property, this exact method that I just described where we draw along the contours at those transition points, and then draw the lines down all of the draws, look at those intersections, and then we kind of started just walking around to those points to take a look at them. What does this spot actually look like? And we went to a couple first, and it's like, yeah, I I could envision this maybe eventually turning into a natural spring. And then I think it was about the third one that we walked to. We walked to this point, we looked down at the ground, and there was the remains of an old log structure of some sort right on that point precisely. I don't know exactly what it was, whether it was somebody's little camp or shelter that they had built, or if it was actually some some development Of a spring that was there before, some little, some little well house or something. I I have no idea what it actually was, but there was something there that had obviously been built by a person at some point. And I don't think it's a coincidence that that little structure was right there where that natural spring should be. Now that's really encouraging to me because that tells me if there was a spring there before, I can possibly cultivate it to become a natural spring again. One other thing before I forget that I did want to mention about your project is one of the other benefits that people sometimes overlook about the sustainable approach like you're doing now with developing the water sources, developing the natural food sources versus just feeding and watering the wildlife as though they were livestock. One of the big advantages is that Food that's growing naturally on the landscape and water that's flowing out of a natural spring are much less like they're much cleaner and less likely to contribute to animals transmitting disease to each other. Now, if you have a stock tank and a deer feeder, that actually creates a situation where disease transmission between deer is a, a significant risk. So. Like I said, that's just another perk of doing it the way that it sounds like you're doing it now. So congratulations. Keep up the good work on that. And that's all we have for this week. So really enjoying doing some of this question and answer stuff. Keep those questions coming in. It's a lot of fun. I'm compiling them into some of those categories like we talked about so that we can do more episodes like this where, where the Q and A is more focused on something like habitat restoration or something like gardening or cooking or whatever it ends up being. So keep those coming and I will keep answering them. That's like I said, that's all we have for this week. If you want to see what I'm working on now, you can check out my Instagram. I am at isaac.r.gordon. That's G O R D O N. Also, if you have not joined the Master of None podcast, Facebook group. You can do that. Uh, just tell me that you heard the podcast and want to join the group um, and I will let you in. And that's just a place where we can kind of share some of our ideas, projects, get some inspiration, get some advice on all of the different projects that all of us are working on. And if you have a question or anything like that, or you want to share some pictures directly with me, you can email me contact at com, Or if you forget what that email is, you can always go on the website, com and just go to the contact me page. And I hope maybe listening to some other listeners' questions has inspired you to maybe tackle some habitat improvement project, whether that's large or small scale, whether it's on your own property or cooperate with somebody else to help them on their property or maybe even work with like your local conservation district to do a habitat improvement project on some public land that's that's a great opportunity to get out there too there are all sorts of organizations doing these habitat improvement projects all the time so you can get involved even if you don't have a big chunk of land to work with until next week pursue your mastercraft bye Theme music for the Master of None podcast is Club Seamus by Kevin McLeod, Incompetech.com Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 Creativecommons.org If you need some of your own original music, go check out Kevin's other work at his website, Incompetech.com